Welcome to Adoption Unfiltered, a podcast about examining various viewpoints of lived adoption experiences. Your hosts, Sarah Easterly, Kelsey Vanderbilt-Rainyard, and Lori Holden, occupy three corners of the adoption triad, and we invite you to join us as we cover sensitive and timely issues from the perspectives of an adoptee, a birth parent, and an adoptive parent. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Adoption Unfiltered. I'm Sarah Easterly. I'm an adoptee and I'm joined by a lot of people today, as you can tell, um, with my usual suspects, uh, Kelsey Vandervliet-Ranyard, birth parent, and Lori Holden, an adoptive parent. And um, this is our second Adoption Constellation Roundtable. So we have a lot of other people with us as well, and we'll get to that shortly. The three of us represent three parts of the adoption constellation. If you've watched previous episodes of Adoption Unfiltered, you know that we are about coming together for authentic, sometimes difficult conversations in a way that inspires change and understanding hearts and action. Sometimes an episode is just the three of us talking about an issue. Sometimes we're bringing in a guest who has lived experience or expertise with a certain aspect of adoption. And once in a while, we bring together a group of people to talk about something coming together with individual perspectives and leaving the conversation with a better understanding of multiple aspects of an issue. So as I mentioned earlier, this time we're here as a group included in our gathering this time are many of the fabulous people who we interviewed for our book, Adoption Unfiltered, which is going to be released very soon, December 1st. We loved their perspectives so much that uh, we really cherish these roundtables a way for, um, I mean, we had so much every 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 interview it felt like we could have spent a whole book sharing just from each of these interviews so yeah these these roundtables are a great way for us to allow people to get to know you more and to dig deeper into certain topics like we're going to do tonight so our book by the way is already available for pre-sale that's if you're listening to this podcast before november 30th if you're listening to it after december 1st or on december 1st um, you'll be able to order it right away if you order now though you'll be among the first to get adoption unfiltered delivered to you through your favorite bookseller we are in three different corners of adoption but we recognize that we are three women whose lived experience falls under domestic adoption. To tell a broader and more extensive story of adoption, we conducted qualitative interviews with a lot of other people, 50 of them from the Adoption Constellation, as well as some allies to share about their experience that range in adoptions, closed and open, domestic international, same race and transracial, the list goes on with race, age, and in perspe perspectives. The last time we had a roundtable, we spent so much time introducing our panelists that we didn't leave a lot of time for the conversation. So, um, but at a high level, I just want to start by noting that this is a really adoptee heavy space today. And we're totally okay with that. Our mission is about centering adoptees. And we also know that we have many others from throughout the constellation who will be tuning in. Um, I would love to just quickly highlight the adoptee corner. Um, uh, many of us in this room, in addition, um, well, I'm looking around at each and every one of you, many of this, many of us in this room have been working in adoption in various constellation groups and in various capacities for a while. So, um, just at a very high level, Tony Hines is here with us. He works at the center for adoption support and education, Marcy Purcell, um, former president of adoption knowledge affiliates, um, I want to back up a little bit because Dr. Joyce McGuire-Pavo, who has 55 
years of experience in groups such as this and all kinds of other things, um, who wrote the foreword to our book is here. Um, Julian Washio Collette, who is a part of the Adoption Mosaic Better Together community that I'm a part of and a few others in the room are as well. Um, David Bull, who does a lot of work with the Celia Center. Carmen Hinckley, who's on the Adoption Mosaic team and also works in adoption. Uh, Susan Harness, who regularly speaks and writes in front of all kinds of ad adoption related audiences. Um, and we have two other therapists in addition to Dr. Joyce, who are adoptee therapists. I should say there's more than three therapists here, um, but Kathy McKechnie and Diego Batelli. Um, so it's just a really stacked group. And Kayla Chung has um, done a lot of writing for Intercountry Adoptee Voices and um, Anyway, so that is just very quickly, like I said, I could spend hours introducing each of you and um, I'm trying to zip it so we can get to the conversation. Really glad you're all here. Um, two of my interviewees are here. We have Ashley Mitchell. She's the founder of Lifetime Healing Foundation. She leads the nationwide DNA program offering support groups and curriculum for birth moms. And we have Amy Erickson, um, she's an advocate and she's also on the team at Lifetime Healing. So we are really representing Lifetime Healing Foundation here today with birth moms. Um, but both of these birth moms are, are longtime advocates in this space and, and good friends of mine as well. So I'm really grateful they're here. I'd like you to, to introduce you to four of my interviewees. Um, Maureen McCauley, I'm a Brady Bunch girl, sorry, I say Maureen McCormick. Maureen McCauley, I'm sure that's not the first time you've gotten that, Maureen. Maureen McCauley, Beth Syverson, and Lisa Weissman are all adoptive parents through um, international intercountry adoption. Uh, Maureen is also through foster adoption. And I'd like to introduce Jen Winkleman, who is a local um, Denver therapist um, working with adoptive families and adoptees and the space in between. Everyone here has agreed to our community guidelines that we have. These are in place to help us all cultivate curiosity, openness, respect, and a deep-seated desire to understand another person's point of view. I speak now to mostly the adoptive parents who are tuning in, but perhaps to others. If you find yourself triggered by something in tonight's discussion, take note of it. Later on, reflect on that with curiosity to see what the trigger may be trying to tell you. Maybe even congratulate yourself for getting to the edge of your comfort zone and on into your discomfort zone, because that's where growth takes place. What information is there? Is there an unhealed place within you that is ready to be acknowledged and tended to? As I state in the work that I do with adoptive parents, your children, young or grown, are ex experts at finding your hot buttons but they're not responsible for healing them. That's wholly your responsibility. So whenever you find one of those spots, perhaps tonight, because we don't know what's gonna come up, sit with it and consider what it might take to neutralize that trigger and to heal that spot. With that, let's get into our topic for the night. Sarah? The topic for tonight is what are, it's a big one. What are some of the hard parts about adoption? So, we, when we were prepping for this and coming up with this topic, I just said yesterday, I said, this is kind of a ridiculous question because it might be better to ask what's not hard about adoption. 
Um, it's, you know, and it might be hard to know where to begin, um, without sharing our entire life stories, each of us. So, um, what we thought we would do this time to, in a little bit of a different way is to build a list together, um, and, and just see where that takes us and see where the conversation goes. Um, I'm going to take notes in the chat, um, just for all of us so that we can see, so that we're, we can see this and we'll put this in the show notes as well. And then I'm going to ask Lori to facilitate as we go while I'm doing some note-taking um, and uh, trying to keep everybody in the know in the room. Okay, so let's build the list. Um, raise your hand if, <laughs> if anyone you wanna jump in. Okay, Kathy, thank you. Thank you. The first thing that came to me with this question is relinquishment. Relinquishment is the hard part about adoption or the first hard part. And even that we call it adoption and that it's the adoption that is centered, I think is hard. And that's something that I just wrote about for a chapter. I wrote for an IFS book and I was invited to write a chapter on IFS internal family systems with adoptees. And I had an opportunity to write about the centering of adoption and that it starts with relinquishment and relinquishment was the first thing that came to me about one of the hard parts. As um, from a birth mother perspective for me, I think a really hard thing is um, trying to match um, the realities of the post relinquishment with the narrative during pregnancy. You're talking about the gap between what you were thinking while you were making the decision. Yeah, what I think um, for for me specifically, uh, I think what was um, being told to me by adoption professionals, what maybe church narrative looked like, um, uh, just people around me, pressures and things like that with a narrative of um, right decisions, better decisions than what, and then in the aftermath of relinquishment, when the realities of grief and trauma hit, how much that, how much disconnect was there and trying to settle the imbalance of those narratives. Okay. So I see Diego and Julian and I want to get, and, and David and Susan and Amy, and I want to get to all of those, but before we before we go to those, both Ashley and Kathy have brought up relinquishment. So let's spend just a little bit of time talking about relinquishment, what Kathy said and what Ashley said. Um, I'm going to make myself notes, Diego, David, <laughs> Susan, and Amy, um, and we will get back to you. And I, I'll tell you when to raise your hands again. But for now, does, who has something to say about relinquishment? David, I see, your, I see you now. Or, you know, it, it, I try to keep things really simple because this is a very complex topic that we're discussing, but we also have very rich and complex experiences. And sometimes I, I go so far down the rabbit hole, I, I forget where I started. So for me, it's really simple. Until I personally was able to acknowledge relinquishment as a separate event from adoption, I was not able to deconstruct my very experiences within those two narratives. So being relinquished was the act of my being legally um, relinquished by my, what turned out to be my birth mother. 
and by, of course, their culture and my family, etc. Adoption was a second part whereby I was adopted into another family where I tried to assimilate and connect and, and to gain um, the support and love that we needed. So until I was able to see those two as separate things, it was very difficult to, to deconstruct what healing needed to happen if there was healing that needed to happen or what clarity needed to be found. Um, and I think that's added by a discussion in, I guess, when I call it media, I'm not sure, a general discussion that doesn't separate between the two events. I really appreciate that, David, because I think until now, and I've been in this space a while, I don't think I had heard articulated like that, the separation between the abandonment rejection piece of adoption and the assimilation piece of adoption. So um, that helps me understand that. Do any other adoptees have anything to add to that that um, piece, Suzanne, Susan? When I met my um, my birth mom, I you know it was a really uncomfortable meeting, right? Because both of us are looking at each other thinking of all the judgments that could fly back and forth. And I can remember um, she just lowered her head and she was crying and she wouldn't look at me. And um, and when I knelt down, I, I told her, you know, I'm, I'm Vicki Charmaine, I've come home. And she said, I thought you were gonna call me all kinds of bad names. I thought you were going to be so angry with me. And, it was really good for me to hear her side of the story because it's so easy in this society to hold um, birth parents responsible for all kinds of things that many times are absolutely out of their control, especially if you are an impoverished, uh, impoverished situation um, as she was. Um, so I was really grateful that that she just spoke so honestly with me. Thank you for sharing that, Susan. Marcy? Uh, I was just gonna say, I really appreciate, again, with David, the, the distinction between relinquishment and adoption. Um, having been adopted out of foster care at three, and yet my birth mom did relinquish me um, at birth. So they were really two very distinct experiences for me that happened three years apart. And it wasn't until I was an adult um, that I was able to tease out the fact that those are two distinct um, occurrences. And like, I, I think the relinquishment happened to both me and my birth mother um, and the adoption is something that happened to me and my adoptive family. So there's separate parties involved. There really are two very distinct events. And I, I don't think you have to have three years in between both. Um, to, to, to have that perspective, but I do think for me that that really um, resonates because I, I do have that um, that time span. Thank you for that, Marcy. I like the way you put that with the adoptee being between those two families. Um, so thank you for that. Julian, what did you have to say? Well, I wanted to kind of build on that. I um, I agree that it's important to make a, dis uh, a distinction uh, between relinquishment and adoption and name um, the trauma of relinquishment, speaking as an adoptee. But I think it's also important to name the, the uh, adoption as a distinct trauma as well. 
I was uh, relinquished and adopted twice uh, as an infant and at nine years old. So there is the adoption I remember and the adoption that I, I don't remember, but my body remembers. And within my in my experience, there there is the the uh, profound um, trauma of abandonment, of separation, of loss in the relinquishment. And then in the midst of that trauma, suddenly you have to adapt to um, people who are strangers. You have to adapt to a new identity, a new story. Um, and that in itself is, 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 is extraordinarily traumatic. And I believe it's traumatic for the baby as well. Um, so I just wanted to name that. I appreciate people um, naming relinquishment as trauma, but I also want to name the, uh, you call it the uh, adaptation process of adoption as highly traumatic as well. And maybe even like the compounding effect of the, the abandonment and then the adapting so close in time, even, exactly. in, even in like Marcy's case, yeah, it, that happens even though there's a three-year gap that she was, you were kind of in the between, you also had that, those two intense things happening um, too. Dr. Pavo, what do you have for us? I can just be Joyce. Um, and I just wanted to say that um, relinquishment is a funny word. And, and I sort of jumping on top of what Ashley said and what Susan said, uh, you know, my own birth mother and so many that I've met would take umbrage with the term, you know, relinquishment. Uh, they didn't really relinquish. Uh, it was encouraged, enforced uh, societally or by their parents or their church or someone else. Um, it's, you know, I, I think we've had so many, I mean, and it gets you into deep water changing language, but that's one of the words that I think we spent a lot of time in the 80s discussing and really, um, you know, wondering whether that was the right word to use. It doesn't really matter what word we use because David said it beautifully that, you know, it really it, it's about the experience of going from the place that you were held initially to the new place. And, um, you know, whatever language we use isn't as important as the experience. Um, so I just throw that in. I so appreciate that with your history of adoption and your history with the language of adoption, because um, that could be its whole own episode. So Ashley, I'm glad you're bringing it back because I wanted to um, now get into perhaps anything, you, anything any follow up you have on that, but also back to your original point and maybe what Susan had to say about that. Yeah, I, I really appreciate those comments, but I think it's so interesting when you look at this and I definitely, I know we got to cover a lot more topics than relinquishment. I mean, we could <laughs> unpack all of the questions of the universe and never cover it all. But, um, you know, as a birth mother, I think one of the biggest insights and things that I've learned, I mean, I'm only 18 years. I feel like that is a hundred lifetimes, but, um, when we relinquish and have the termination and the paperwork and the legalese thrown at us and all these conversations, what I've learned for sure is that the termination or relinquishment of parental rights is not the same as the emotional rights to, to Derek and to being present with my son. And, um, 
that's been powerful to understand that just because on paperwork, I'm not allowed to make this decision or this decision or this decision, that there's an emotional right for me to show up and be there because I've had the opportunity for open adoption to be in those spaces. And I think for birth mothers, it's important for us as adoptees are trying to make the distinctions between what relinquishment and their adoption looks like as birth mother, speaking for myself, for sure, the distinction between the relinquishment of my parental rights versus my emotional rights with my son are two very different things for me. That's another great distinction. Thanks. And I wonder if Jen, you are about to flesh that out a little bit. I don't know if I can flesh it out anymore, but I was just thinking as I was listening to Joyce and then hearing Ashley afterward, I feel like language is actually one of the hard things about adoption because we talk about these incredibly horrific and devastating events with sort of clinical or uh, surgical precision as if that somehow dampens it a little bit. Like I remember um, working for an agency where there was this big push at the time where we don't talk about kids being given up. We talk about kids being placed. And it's like, on one hand, I get it. And on the other hand, yeah, being placed may not resonate very much with the person who's having that experience with the adoptee. It may not feel like placement at all. And our, our word choice in the way that we talk about the impact is so significant. I don't even think there are the right words. I'm glad that we're trying to find them. I think it's important that we're having the conversation, but I just was really struck, um, particularly as Joyce was, you know, reflecting on the eighties and trying to find the right words. And I was like, are there any, are there any, I don't know that there are any. Thank you for that, Jen. Marcy, what do you have to say? Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, I really like the distinction between legal relinquishment and emotional um, <laughs> emotional relinquishment or emotional rights um, because, or legal rights and emotional rights. Because I know I, I've been in, in a, a reunion with my, my mother, my birth mother. I only use that birth mother term in these types of forums. But my mother relinquished me um, into a closed adoption but she never emotionally relinquished me, never. She said to me recently for 20 years, I didn't know where you were. So for her, it was about a missing child. It was not, you know, so she never emotionally let go of me. So I, I really like that distinction. I appreciate that too, as an adoptive parent. And I think adoptive parents can benefit from hearing that um, just because you have the legal rights doesn't mean that you have um, you're automatically going to be the only emotional connection in fact the more you try to stamp out one of them i think the less emotional connection is possible that you have um let's move on to our next um, topic which i think might be oh Diego, first real quick Lori diego yeah. i see diego's hand raised Yes. Oh, sorry. And and Diego, was, I was going to go to you next anyway. So go ahead and wrap that one up and then start the next one. Oh, thank you. I think it'll flow well uh, enough. Um, in terms of the, the language piece, um, I, I kind of uh, agree with Joyce in the word choices. And 
you know, I come at this obviously as an adoptee and then I also come at from a, a, a clinical perspective and it's always interesting because you're getting a variety of uh, different uh, clientele in, <clears throat> in the therapeutic space. And I think, you know, one of the hardest things, again, with uh, adoption is the idea of who the populations are that we're talking about. Some of these are domestic adoptees. Some of these are transracial international adoptees, all having very different experiences. Some of these are uh, much younger uh, adoptees that have been in, you know, this newer sort of wave of adoption. Some of them are from the baby scoop era. Some of us are from the 70s. Like we all come from different decades and times and periods when language was thrown around differently because of that. So I definitely like when from the clinical standpoint, I like to use the the terminology of separation trauma as a starting point uh, for uh, adoptees and language with adoptive parents, but especially for the adoptee and then for the adoptee to be able to identify what's most resonant for them. If that relinquishment is really resonant to them, then then we want to talk about that and really focus in on that because that's what's there for them. But a unifying, I think, language term is a separation trauma because across all generations, that is the definitive thing that has happened is that there's been a separation uh, and that there's trauma in the separation uh, as well. And I do like somebody else, I will not remember everybody's name, but the idea of the adoption part of it and what, what role does that play? And I always make a little bit of a distinction saying that, you know, not all adoption necessarily is trauma. Uh, it's sometimes adoptees experience trauma in their adoption uh, because of whatever experiences that they've uh, come into. And, you know, adoptive parents, we know uh, there's a numerous of them uh, who have not done well uh, by adoptees and taking care of them and so on and so forth. So let's say that for that. But uh, in terms of another topic uh, that's kind of in line with this, and again, me coming from an international adoptee perspective, one of the hardest uh, personal experiences is the loss of my cultural roots and my uh, my identity as a Latino person that was raised by Irish Italian people out of Boston that I assimilated into that world and had no idea what it meant to be um, Latino and didn't come into that identity awareness until I was, you know, in my early 30s and um, trying to figure that out and still trying to navigate it now in my later 40s and uh, trying to understand what it what does it mean to be Latino? What does it mean to, you know, um, try and regain my language, I think is the biggest part of that for a transracial international adoptee that does not is not able to maintain their language uh, in that sense. And then on top of that, loss of other identities like date of birth, um, identifying information or biology. Not everybody has a, an understanding or connection to their biology. Um, I know domestically, there's a lot of closed adoptions that makes it harder. Transracial international adoptees have an added barrier because a lot of those are also uh, rooted in you know closed adoptions scenarios. And largely some of, not largely, I shouldn't say it that way. A lot of them uh, or a significant amount of them are also uh, illegally uh, conducted. And so you've got the barriers of trying to figure out what's legal, what's not, how do you find your actual uh, legal identifying information to even possibly try and reconnect with your own biology. I saw so many heads nod, Diego, when you started talking about losing your culture, losing your language. 
Um, and not all the heads were adoptees. Some of them were um, adoptive parents that I noticed. Um, I'd like to flesh out each of these, but I think in order to make sure that everybody kind of has a chance to be heard, I'm going to go back to Julian, who I believe was next in line. Julian, did you have something to say about the, a hard part of adoption that hasn't been said yet? Or did you already go? I already went. Okay. Um, I'm, I, I do have something to say, but I'm willing to... Go for it. Since, okay. Well, I just, I, I question the idea that not all adoptions are traumatic. Um, and again, I, I come at this from primarily my experience of being adopted as a nine-year-old. But I, you know, even if you're an infant, like there's some inter internal sense of, call it identity, who you are, where you belong. And yeah, separation trauma is is one thing, but I think having to adapt, having to be, become a completely new person in completely new relationships has to be intrinsically traumatic at some level. And yeah, I would, I'd like to, I, I'd be curious about developing some language around that because we don't really have it. I kind of called it adaptation trauma. I don't, I don't know. But I just, um, yeah, that it didn't. That doesn't sit right. It, the idea that not all adoptions are traumatic just didn't sit right with me. I, I could be wrong. I'm. I'm. I just wanted to voice my opinion. Sarah, I'm just going to insert here. Do you want to say something about that? I was going to say I don't think you're wrong, Julian. I absolutely do not think you're wrong. I think that there's there are responses that that. Um, that exactly what you said, you worded it so eloquently, just in terms of adaptation. I think that's the word. Um, and what all the things we do to fit in or express, you know, there's how we don't fit in, right? I mean, I think you, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I think it's really complicated. Susan, I see your hand too. I'm curious what you have to say about that. Thank you. So um, with regard to all adoptions being traumatic, I think there is an aspect of trauma to each of them. Um, I do, I, I do want to say that um, one of the memories, one of the, the probably the first memories I had with, with in my family, and I was placed into my family when I was two. Um, one of the first memories I have is waiting, you know, I'm waking up for a, from a nap and I'm waiting for something. I, I remember looking at the door um, it's the middle of the day. That's why I'm I'm taking a nap, but I'm looking at the door and I'm looking at the door and pretty soon the door opens and I see my mom and she's smiling at me. And when I say my mom, I mean my adoptive mom and she's smiling at me. And I remember just being so happy. I was so happy to see her. And I think I was so happy to see her because I had been removed from an extremely chaotic situation. And I think she was like the first person that I saw that showed up time after time after time. So, you know, I, I know I have um, issues with, um, being removed and being placed, but those are balanced by this memory 
of um of joy of seeing this person that took me into her life let me just say that i'm I'm really glad to hear you say that because what it what i what it says to me is that even though there is separation trauma and there is a wound we can do adoption well in a way that that wound can um become another attachment um, if somebody's walking alongside you, if adoptive parents are adept at attuning, all hope is not lost. And I, I think you're right. My dad, on the other hand, was a whole different issue. So I'll just know that, <laughs> that um, you know, this has a very specific viewpoint. Um, the topic that I, I wanted to say is... Um, as an American Indian transracial adoptee who was placed in um, in a society that was very anti-Indian, you know, as as kind of a a rule, I felt like a lightning rod for racism because I was the most accessible American Indian that anybody knew, and that I was there with everybody else. They didn't have to go to the reservation. They didn't have to go to the other side of town. Um, all they had to do was have me in their class, you know, have me in their friendship circle. I, so, I mean, there is the isolation, um, the cultural isolation, the racial isolation was really tough. Thank you for sharing that. And then kind of the twin on that I, that um, I've heard is the tokenization. Like you're the you're the go to person for that whole culture. Yeah. Any comments on that? I was going to say real quick, you know, um, I I personally have just learned that there are people who come to me because they are um, they don't know they don't know how else to broach a conversation. And they know that, you know, if they ask me respectfully, I will hear them respectfully and we'll, and we'll have an eye-opening conversation. I don't mind being that educator, um, but I, you know, that, that respectful part sometimes doesn't happen. <laughs> So I'm watching the clock and I want to cover a couple more things. So what I'm going to suggest, have I, have I gotten to everybody who had their hand raised originally? David, did I, you were one of them and you spoke, but I'm not sure you got to say your point. Do you want to? I was, and I'm going to, going to keep it very simple, but thanks for the opportunity, Lori. You know, to me, one of the most difficult things about adoption is simply having to forage for information. And I understand that seems very straightforward, but I think it's also a common thread between many individuals in our constellation, as well as others who may be searching for their identity. But it has been a lifelong journey for me to search for facts and to search for context and to search for language and to search for best practices. All right, this is not something that was culturally handed down to me. I think we're getting better at it. And by the way, everybody in this room is doing everything that they can to help better this situation, of course. But, but that lack of information and having to forage for it to work really hard to find it is is has been difficult from the very beginning and even later on in adult life when we've evolved in other places. I so appreciate you saying that because um, 
one of the reasons why all of you were interviewed for our book is because one of our main thrusts is to bring transparency and true openness to adoption. And that doesn't mean um, in name only, it doesn't mean just contact, it means access to one's information the way anybody else has. It means telling the full story, the whole story age appropriately. It means clear channels between uh, adoptive parents and birth parents, adoptive parents and, and adoptive uh, and adoptees. Um, and, and I put adoptive parents in there because uh, it, at some point they hold all the power. So this is where the responsibility also lies. So I really appreciate that point, David, about getting everybody, especially adoptees, their information as much as can be given. Nothing should be kept. Joyce? Just two quick things that I wanted to say. One, uh, in response to Susan, that, you know, it isn't the child's job to integrate the world. And there have been writers who have, uh, you know, clearly said that transracial and international adoption integrate, and they're wonderful for that kind of change. And I, I think those kinds of comments, you know, although they may be true in some ways, are not helpful to adoptees or to the world of adoption or to changing the things that are wrong with adoption. And, you know, I think that's really important. And, and other books, there are several books that, you know, you read them and you just go, oh, no. Um, even the title uh, of one of the books that really triggers me is Nobody's Children. Um, there is not a child in the world ever who's nobody's child. Um, and, you know, although they may be orphaned by real or imaginary, they have other extended family. So that message is so detrimental to the adoptee. So I just, you know, to really be careful as you're helping other people to understand, to point out some of the things that sound great as a soundbite, but they hurt. Thank you for saying that, Joyce. I think that goes to the, the big point of languaging and how we phrase things and, and that words have meaning, words have impact. Um, Amy, what would you like to say? I actually wanted to comment on the the searching for information because from a birth mother perspective, um, my personal experience is that I had a closed adoption and it was a fully anonymous adoption. So, um, but when we were um, reunited, um, obviously there was a lot that I didn't know um, in, in the situation. And um, over the years, it's been 10 years since we've been reunited, but um they, they share with me what they choose to, obviously that's, that's just been part of the process of, of reuniting. And, um, so there's so much information and things that I'd like to know about, you know, past experiences and, and specific information about my daughter that, um, you know, that they haven't, they haven't felt inclined to share with me. Um, but the other thing is that I actually attempted recently to get a copy of my daughter's original birth certificate, and I just wanted to try it. <laughs> and here in Utah, um, obviously those um, are closed and sealed, and I'd have to have, I discovered I'd have to have a court order to get, get that record. And um, so that was something that, you know, it actually is, 
I didn't, when I was in the hospital, I didn't know that I could actually request a copy of the original birth certificate prior to it being amended. I never knew that. I was never told that. So I really missed that opportunity. And um, so that's something that, that it hits me pretty hard because having that piece of paper in my hand that says that I gave birth to that child, um, that would be big for me. So I just wanted to kind of add that, that access to information also hits birth mothers in, in a lot of ways. Thank you for sharing that from that perspective. Um, and and I, I do think true openness has to include records as well, right? Or at least birth certificates as, as Dr. Joyce helped me understand last time we talked. Um, Sarah and Kelsey, is there anything that you wanted to follow up on um, or any other um, hard thing that you would like to bring up? So one of the hard things I think for me, um, which is, it seems pretty fundamental, um, but just not having my child in my home. Um, I'm in a season where I'm parenting a little one who, um, and, and I, I actually relinquished my first child um, for adoption. And then now I'm parenting my daughter. And um, I think we, we notice very, um, I notice all the time, like his, um, where he's missing. Um, we feel like there's a missing bed in our home. We feel like there's a missing car seat in our backseat. And we feel like there's a, you know, we, we feel the, um, the lack of his presence. And so I think that is one of the hard things. And I felt it before I had my daughter too, but you don't really understand what it's like to be a parent until you just are. And so, um, there are things that are much more stark now that I am, I'm going through all of the milestones and the day-to-day -day stuff with my daughter that I, that I'm now realizing that I've missed. So that's what I would add. Lisa, you have your hand up. Um, this goes way back to something Diego said, which is that as an adoptive parent, I feel tremendous guilt over my daughter's loss of culture and loss of family. Uh, we were in Ethiopia this summer. She has a glorious and rich and close family. And we're a very small family. And to sit with that and understand that we participated in a system that really does not help children in this particular case, for sure. And raising my child through that ambivalence is a complicated it's complicated because you want to give her everything you can in terms of all of the, it's just, it's very complicated and that there's just a lot of guilt. Thank you for being vulnerable with that, Lisa. I, I have heard other adoptive parents say that as well. They, what they don't know on the front end and then it, the, it dawns on them and then it becomes, how do I make this right? And that's the hard, one of the hard parts about adoption is we can't always make it right. There's not a lot of fixing of some of these situations. Um, so that, thank you for sharing that. I would love to hear from some, some others I'm that we haven't heard from yet. Um, Carmen, I'm looking at you. Do you, did you come with any thoughts on one or one or two? I know there's 
so many things, but um, well, I would like to add to what was said earlier um, about the loss of culture, um, lose loss of language, um, loss of just the different parts of the birth country that you would have been connected to if you'd grown up there. Um, I was adopted from Brazil as an infant, um, and I've been back there once, and it was a powerful experience, but um, I wish I felt more connected. So I work on that. Um, there's a uh, there's actually a business in Portland. It's a Brazilian cafe um, that I've been known to frequent. Just trying my best to kind of connect with that the culture uh, that I lost is something that's important to me. Um, and I would also say that um, another hard part of adoption, and I don't meet too many other adoptees um, that are in the situation, but. Um, I've reunited many years ago with both of my birth parents, and then um, years after that, they each died um, a few years apart. So, you know, I I lost them when I was born, and through you know through adoption, and uh, and then lost them again when they each died. And it's a um, it's an experience that you can't really prepare yourself for. You know, um, death is a part of life, but uh, but I, I didn't expect it, you know? And so that's been another, it's been kind of a whole other layer um, to deal with. So that's something that just on a personal level has been a hard part. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for sharing that. Let me volley to Beth. Beth, is there anything you would like to say? Yes, uh, thank you. I've been really just listening intently to all of your voices and I'm letting it soak in. I think at this point in our journey, one of the hardest things for me is realizing the depth of pain that my son is in and that I had a piece in that. And like Lisa was saying, just the guilt and, but not, you know, groveling at his feet and making my guilt his problem, making that my problem to deal with over here. But just, just mm, the level of pain my child is in is excruciating. And it's also excruciating for me to watch that. And um, I've tried at, at, at one point I tried to fix him. I tried to do this and that and take him to here and there and try to fix him and realize that I can't fix him because he's not broken. This is just his path and he's going to have to figure it out and trying to walk beside him while he figures this out is it, it takes a lot. I appreciate you saying that because the fixing energy um, can be helpful until it's not, and then it becomes part of the problem. Um, Maureen, I would love to hear from you if you have something to say. Sure, thank you very much. I feel like, again, I'm learning so very much and really appreciate everything that is being said. I can. I, I thought about the question before we met today, and so if it's okay, I'm just going to say a couple of things that came to mind very, very briefly. Um, one of the hard parts of adoption, um, and I'm focusing myself on this one, of course, is not knowing how much I didn't know about racism and trauma um, when my children were placed um, and understanding that over time. Um, another was as an adoptive parent, wondering what stuff that came up in childhood and even into adulthood for my kids was related to adoption and what was developmental, typical developmental issues. That I think is just an ongoing part. Um, and a, a third item that I would say is, is learning about the role of um, economic privilege and racial privilege in adoption as well. So I could those go are, on. 
Those are all three wonderful points. If I'm remembering, you said um, something about not knowing at the beginning what you wish you'd known earlier. And that's why I appreciate so many of you have come on my podcast to help me figure that out for myself and, and share it back. You talked about understanding development and knowing that things happen in a certain order at a certain time. And then I can't remember the third one you said because I didn't write it down. I think oh, classism, power dynamics. Right, right. And the role of money. Yeah, absolutely. The role of money. And I, I do want to add each of my four children, I, I believe, have processed adoption in very different ways. And that's including my twins. So I think that's always a, such an important point as well, how individual um, the processing and the and the the trauma and the the healing goes on for individuals and how it takes place in many different facets, I, I would say, over time. Thank you. Jen, what do you have to say? Um, I think I think Maureen just captured part of what I wanted to offer because I was piggybacking off of part of what Beth said a couple of minutes ago about walking walking alongside an adoptee. And I think one of the hard things about adoption is that there is no map. There may be these, you know, guiding principles and things that we sort of are discovering as a community that might be somewhat useful for everybody. But the fact of the matter is there's no recipe. And so for each person who's in pain, it's a process of discovery and relationship building in order to help that first person feel as though someone's walking alongside them. And I think, I think that's one of the really complicated things. If we were able to, if we were able to bottle healing, wow, wouldn't that be so great for everybody? <laughs> but it's just not the way that it works. I think that's one of the things that makes it so complicated. We are all an end of one. What works for one I mean, there are probably some general principles about attachment that um, and connection and um, just ways of doing things that help. But every child, every person needs to be seen for who they are in that moment. It's not even like you get it with one ch child and then it's it's you're set. You, you got to kind of always be tuning in. Um, Jess, let me just give you a chance. Jess is one of our allies. Um, Jess, would, do you have anything that you'd like to say? I just appreciate everyone's things that they've shared. I feel like I don't have much to add to this because I didn't get to adopt. Um, I went through the process, but I can say that the more that we learned about the process, the more uncomfortable we became with the process, which I don't know if that made it easier to leave, but it was almost like the fact that we went for two years without having a match and then the agency's answer to that was do things you're uncomfortable with um, to widen your net basically, which to us seemed highly unethical. And hearing everything that I'm hearing now, like I guess it just kind of, Knowing the pieces that we did know when we were in the process, I think that we don't feel as sad <laughs> that it didn't work out at that point because there is so much complexity. And while I would love to think that we would have done adoption well, um, I just feel like there were so many red flags and, and alarm bells with how it was 
handled in a very transactional manner um, that we were like, how would we feel explaining this to our child? And yeah, so I don't really have anything other than that to say, <laughs> but thank you so much for everyone's perspectives. It's really helpful to hear, especially as a teacher, to kind of understand some of my students who are going through adopt adoption related trauma on various points. So thank you. Thank you, Jess. And um, I just appreciate your very unique viewpoint um, and how you walked your walk with a certain um, integrity. Um, Ashley, I see your hand up. Um, yeah, just to circle back, just, and I, I mean, it, we circle back to relinquishment again. I mean, I at the core of it, right? It all starts there, not ends there. It starts there. And then the lifelong journey begins through this process, right? When uh, from birth mothers, when you hear the adoptive parents talking about the guilt and the pain of their children and um, to, you know, go back to Maureen's great points on, you know, not to get into like the nature versus nurture and the, you know, loss of culture and all those things uh, for birth parents that are, you know, how we're viewed to our children is, is the narrative of the adoptive parents and how the adoptees see themselves is the viewpoint of how they see the biological parents. So when adoptive parents have a very great responsibility to be able to not in falsehood, always layered in truth, but to be able to lay a foundation of some sort of building blocks for biological parents and adoptees to be able to be seen and have the opportunity to um, know each other and feel that connection comes down to the adoptive parents and the narrative that's in their homes. And when things are really hard and adoptive parents are feeling really guilty and maybe adoptees are struggling, it, it's easy to blame biology. <laughs> I mean, it just, we're, we're in kind of an easy target in that space. When we don't understand the full picture, the complexities, the nuances, Adopted parents also, you know, even going back to relinquishment where my narrative didn't match during pregnancy and now in the aftermath, I think that's true for adopted parents. I think they came in thinking it was going to be one thing and it turned out not to be that thing. And so I think um, as adopted parents are listening and processing, the guilt is very real because a lot of those narratives don't match what you were told or promised or expected, but also there's ownership that can be taken from adoptive parents that sets a really great example for how we represent the biological parents and the adoptees in your home. That's really helpful to understand, Ashley, that we have the adoptive parents have the power to tell the story in the way that makes us look best. And um, that doesn't always turn out so well for our child, for our child's birth parents, and then ultimately for us. I think that's, I, I would add that too. Um, Joyce, I'm gonna have you talk and then Tony, I know you're back and we'd like to hear from you and then we'll start to wrap things up. Joyce? I'd like to have Tony go first. I've had a lot of airspace. I wanna say one thing later, but. I was just going to piggyback on that last comment that Ashley was making about narrative and painting of narrative of birth parents versus adoptive parents there. And even in the way that we approach adoption from explaining it from a clinical perspective, the separation trauma that we talk about centers the experience of adoptees prior to being adopted 
and initiates the discussion around the trauma that they're experiencing being trauma that they've experienced prior to adoption. And that's really important because it means that then social workers, clinicians, caseworkers, adoptive parents are focused on quote, you know, healing said trauma that happened prior to adoption and that we're not as focused on the trauma that's occurring after uh, post-placement. And we have so much research to show us. We have so many empirical, so much empirical data to show us that kids are suffering a lot in the homes of uh, their adoptive homes and that interracial adoptees are suffering in racially isolated spaces where they're experiencing racism, not only from their outside communities, but from their adoptive parents, their adoptive families, that we have people who are experiencing trauma related to how adoptive parents are, are talking about birth family or the information that's been withheld from late discovery adoptees, for example, by, by adoptive parents. And those things aren't mentioned when we think about this discussion around what trauma means in adoption, which has us, again, centering that focus on what's happening prior to, and quote, and I put that in quotation marks, healing said trauma prior to, which leaves so many blind spots to the trauma that adoptees experience after uh, post-placement. Thank you, Tony. That, that was amazing. And uh, in the interest of time, Joyce, I'm going to go right to you. Thank you. Um, I guess what I wanted to say was the hardest part about adoption is adoption. And by that, I mean that the system of adoption, it's an institution. E ever since it became legalized, it became an institution and that's what's wrong with it. it you, you can't do that to human beings. Um, that doesn't mean that there won't be a time because there always has been since the beginning of time that there are some parents that can't raise their children and some children that need to be raised elsewhere. But the way that we've evolved into it, the, the, the institutionalization of adoption is what's wrong. And it's what makes it difficult for everyone. And we're all, I mean, all of the people involved in it are victims of it um, in many ways. And I think that we have enough voices right here and all over um, to know that we're doing it wrong. And it really needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed and changed in so many ways if we're going to do the right thing for kids and families. Yeah, a lot of things, a lot of factors came together in the 20th century that made us set up a, a very dysfunctional system. And um, we are all in correction mode or trying to rebuild something that's better uh, and uh, less dysfunctional, more functional. Kelsey, I saw your hand. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to I was going to add on from Ashley from what Ashley said um, about the way, you know, adoptive parents talk about birth families and it kind of tied it back for me. It tied it back to David's comment from earlier about foraging for information. And um, the more we either don't say about birth families or the more um, like negatively impacting things we do say about birth families. I mean, we're giving um, adoptees more to wade through, um, more work to do, 
in in um, finding information about their origins and and who they are. So, Sarah, you want to wrap us up? Well, I see Marcy's hand. I I don't want to wrap us up. I I want to go all night on this topic, and and there's some more. And I see Marcy's hand is raised. Too. I'll be super short. I just wanted to thank Tony for bringing up what he brought. And um, also to just say that um, I'd like to add persons with disabilities uh, to those marginalized um, adoptees who are very often overlooked. And there's a whole gratefulness narrative around that um, that is uh, very under discussed in our community. So just wanted to add to that. Yeah, thank you, Marcy. And thank you, Tony. Thank you to each and every one of you. I mean, so, so many good points. And I know we, everyone really only sh only had a chance to share one or two things and there's so much more. And I think the takeaway um, of all of this, why are we talking about the hard parts? And and we do this in our book as well. And, you know, we when, when I was writing, um, each of us have a section and then we have a reform section. And when I was writing the adoptee section, I kept kind of having these moments of who's going to want to read this. <laughs> it's so hard. And I'm having, you know, I think today, like who's going to watch this, but I think it's so important that we look and as a culture, we don't want to look at hard things. We don't want to do hard things and we want to turn away. And that ultimately leaves adoptees feeling isolated and feeling alone and then it doesn't serve anybody. So that's the point of why we're we're bringing some of these hard conversations up. And I just thank each and every one of you for your um, ability to speak truth and vulnerability and to share um, and and to just name some of these these hard things. Um, and there's there is a point to it because, um, like Joyce just said, we've got to deconstruct it. We've got to work together and and do this differently because the way it's been done it doesn't work um and there's so many so many things that that um that that just don't need to be the way that they are so i i just thank each and every one of you i i really am not ready to end this conversation so um but i i will wrap it up and just thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening and um, I'm going to turn it over to you, Kelsey, because I could just babble on all day. So we hope you enjoyed tapping into some of the interviewees for Adoption Unfiltered. Our pre-order information for the book is at adoptionunfiltered.com. And to keep up with our episodes, subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen. We have planned a special contest in the winter um, of 2023 for the first 50 people who leave us reviews. We all know that's important to the almighty algorithm. So having the book is going to be essential to that. We want to thank all of our um, interviewees for being here. Thanks for tuning in to all of the all of you out there. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, rate, and share wherever you listen to help other people find Adoption Unfiltered. Again, the almighty algorithm. It's through healthy engagement that we can make the change needed for all these hard things, or some of them. Um, for all people affected by adoption, visit Adoption Unfiltered for other episodes and more information about our other projects. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, rate, and share wherever you listen to help others find Adoption Unfiltered. It's through healthy engagement that we can make the changes needed for all those impacted by adoption. Visit adoptionunfiltered.com for other episodes and more information about our other projects.